Welcome to another Friday of Speaking for Him. I'm Dan Van Zalen, and this is part two of our interview from last week. And here is your host, Andrew Thomason. Yes, just to catch you up and to summarize, we had the first half of our interview with pro-life advocate and attorney Rebecca Kiesling, who was conceived in rape, but God had a greater plan and he allowed her to be adopted, and even through some of the trials in her adopted family, God brought her to himself in a glorious way. And if you haven't heard part one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode before you listen to the rest of this part two, because part two will make much more sense in the context of part one. So without further ado, here is part two of my interview with Rebecca Kiesling. I find that very surprising that that Georgia was one that had exceptions just because there was so much in the media about Georgia, almost more than any other state, was that they were, you know, like going up in arms about Georgia. I guess there's a lot or potentially a lot going on with the entertainment industry there. And so they were threatening to pull out because of because of the heartbeat bill. So, and the funny thing is, like, adding the exceptions didn't make it any better. It's not like, oh, well, now they like you. Yeah, you know? exactly, because <laughs> they ended up being the one that was most talked about. Um, and I do want to get into more discussion about the heartbeat bills, but before we do that, speak to the person who is living in the rape exception, who always brings up the rape exception. I've tried to have conversations with people where I say um, a person's the circumstances of a person's conception does not determine their humanity. They're just as human if they were conceived in rape as they were if they're conceived in love. And, and it's as simple as that for me, but, but a lot of people don't get that message. So what do you say to people when they bring that up to you? I did not deserve to die for the crime of my biological father. I did not deserve the death penalty. And the United States Supreme Court said that rapists don't deserve the death penalty. In Coker v. Georgia, and in the second case of Kennedy v. Louisiana, they said that even for child molesters, it's cruel and unusual punishment. So how is it that you think that I deserve to die for his crime? And I know people say, well, I'm not saying she should have. I just think it should have been her choice. Her choice to kill me? You know, that's not, and that lacks equal protection. The 14th Amendment says that no state shall deny a person equal protection. And I'm a person just like anyone else. Um, more violence does not bring healing. That makes no sense whatsoever. And I tell people, look, you, you don't see, I don't see you advocating for a rape victim to be able to later go and pay somebody to kill her rapist. You know, I've never once heard of anybody advocating that that should be legal, that a rape victim should now be able to pay someone to go kill her rapist. But you're saying it's okay for her to pay someone to go kill the innocent child. I never heard it put quite that way, but I'll have to use that because that is a good point. Um, nobody would ever advocate for that, so why are we advocating for the death of the child? I totally agree with yeah. you. Um so you you talked about these heartbeat bills, and they are there. There is an increasing number of them. I've been heartened. Um, I was looking online. I think there's five or six now um, that are um, enacted. Some of them are being delayed by the courts. But 
um, we really see... In Ohio, they agreed to the, the delay. The Attorney General actually agreed to it with the ACLU. And then they said, let's just wait to see what happens in Kentucky. So is, what, is there any other states besides Georgia that have those exceptions that, like how many of the states have the, the rape exception and the, and the fetal abnormality exception, do you know? Okay, the rape exception is in Georgia with the fetal, you know, so-called fatal fetal abnormality. Um, in the, uh, what do you call it, the dismemberment bill in Arkansas, they added a rape exception. Um, the, in, in Alabama, even though there's not a rape exception, there is a, uh, essentially like a fetal abnormality exception, and there's a, um, an exception for the, like the mother's they say it's not mental health, but it says if the mother says she'll kill herself, essentially, if she'll engage in any kind of behavior that would result in her death or the death of the unborn child. In other words, so if she says, well, I'm suicidal and I'm just going to have an abortion anyway, then she'll be allowed to legally abort. Because well, it says if any harm to her or to her unborn child, if she would engage in behavior that would harm her or her unborn child due to a mental illness. Well, you know, depression is considered a mental illness. You're saying that yeah. she's suicidal is considered a mental illness. So it's, it's like, I mean, that's bad. That's really bad. Exactly. You know? I mean, that's one of the biggest problems with the health exceptions because you, you for the most part, when there is a health exception, it's a... It's a vague health exception. They don't even define it. So if a doctor and her and her, you know, and the and the woman decide, um, well, my health would be compromised. That could mean anything from actual physical health to financial health to, like you said, mental health with depression. And it's just anything. And before you know it, they could use that as a as a reason for anything to happen, kind of like when Roe versus Wade came down, they didn't really do a good job of, of defining the age of viability. And, of course, as technology has has increased, the age of viability is younger and younger all the time. Um, I was born at 29 weeks back in 1979, and I'm definitely a full person. Um, and there have been babies born younger than me that have survived. So it's really... It's really uh, ambiguous and vague to talk about health of the mother or even viability. It's just excuses. Yeah, yeah. And late-term abortions are really dangerous. Um, to have to go in and dilate a woman's cervix for three days, you know, it's much safer for her to just give birth, just induce labor and, and give birth to a healthy baby. But once you go in and you stop a baby's heart, there's no hormones then that are helping the labor along, and it's a much more difficult procedure. It's a three-day procedure. Uh, and then, you know, if you're ripping the baby apart limb by limb, then you've got those shards of sharp limbs that can rip a woman apart, and, and they do. That happens. So it's extremely dangerous. Um, and, you know, they, they use fetal abnormality as the excuse. Um, like, that's somehow compassionate. 
And oftentimes, first of all, these doctors are wrong, but it doesn't matter. Every life still has value. It's total eugenics to suggest that this is the life not worth living. It, it is. It is. There, there's, it's still worth living no matter what, but it is amazing, is it not, how many times doctors are wrong about those things? I still remember one yeah. time that I had a family member call me and and say that, that they had gotten some concerning news about their unborn baby, that there was a strong possibility of spina bifida. So I talked to them at length about living with a disability and how it doesn't have to be a death knell to your life, how I live a quality life despite my disability, and perhaps even to some measure because of it. And it's only the grace of God that shows me that perspective. And then the baby was born a few months later, and the baby was totally 100% healthy, no abnormalities whatsoever. So even if you were going to morally say, I have no problem understanding that there are abnormalities, you're still taking a great gamble as to whether that's actually true, because a lot of times yeah. there isn't. And I just posted an article today um, from one of our speakers, Alicia Christensen, who was given a poor prenatal diagnosis of um, amniotic band syndrome, and doctor originally, you know, initially recommended abortion, and um, they said no way. And then the doctor got on the phone with a surgeon out of state, and the very next morning they had experimental fetal surgery on their son, and it was the, it was the youngest ever. Um, record-breaking surgery at 19 weeks for uh, amniotic band syndrome. Uh, incredible. And, you know, he's four years old now and walking. Uh, he had to have some braces on his legs for some time. But, you know, doctors become better doctors when they treat these children instead of just aborting. Well, because I, I would imagine that for a doctor that actually agrees to do the surgery, I would guess, I, I guess in large part they would have to be somewhat pro-life before then, but even if they weren't, or even if they had questions about that, after successfully completing something like that, there's no denial left. Like, how can you deny the life of the baby that you just <laughs> did an operation on? You really can't. Yeah. So that's yeah. That's pretty powerful. I still remember that time... I think it was Time Magazine article with the photograph with the unborn baby grasping the doctor's finger um, during a, during a fetal surgery, and how powerful yeah. that was. So um, I just have a couple more questions. I thank you for your time. This has been very nice, and I've enjoyed speaking with you. Um, as we continue to engage in the pro life movement, are there any traditional pro life tactics that we fall into that end up being Unaffective or ineffective that you think we needed to change? Well, obviously, allowing for the exceptions would be one of those. Um, I also, um, uh, you know, that just like Christ said that. You know, we're the hands and the body, and we all have different roles. I mean, we, we can't criticize each other for, um, you know, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. When there's so many different ways that God can use our gifts to, um, you know, to affect change, right? I mean, there's 40 Days for Life, Pregnancy Resource Centers, get involved in those. Um, 
you know, Abby Johnson started this new ministry and then there were none uh, to be able to get abortion workers out of these clinics. And, you know, there's a if you have an idea and you think something should be done differently, like start something. Like I started Save the Wall and there was nothing else like it before. And, uh, you know, don't just criticize other organizations for, you know, them doing things, the, you know, the way they not doing things the way you think they should or people, individuals not engaging what you should think they should. Just, you know, if you see a need, just go and do it. Um, I think another part of it is being grateful when people make strides for life um, because I... I've seen certain people that I know who were very pro-choice <clears throat> coming over to the to the pro-life side, and it's really encouraging. And it can be easy to you know get super excited and and make sure that they have all the ducks in a row right away, and just kind of maybe discourage them because maybe they're not approaching it in the same way you would. So I think being allowing for grace even in that is something that can be important. And yeah, um, I think as long as you're not advocating for people to be killed, because like that's where I draw the line. Oh, absolutely. Because I am going to criticize when I see that people like advocating for others to be killed, allowing these exceptions and defending, you know. No, and I and I wasn't politicians that make exceptions. Yeah, and I wasn't saying don't talk about those things. I was just saying that sometimes um, we can uh, crush somebody's enthusiasm by trying to make them understand everything we understand right away. Like, I know yeah. for me, yeah. when I, I was raised in a pro-life household, we, we went to marches for life, but I spent 10 years working for Right to Life of Michigan, and after that 10 years, I would say that I was 500% more pro-life than I was before, oh. before I went into the door. Because I, I, I understood know that a lot about more. you. Aren't, aren't they one of the best organizations in the country? Oh, yeah, they are. Right. And I used to always be so excited because every year at the conference they would read their NARAL rate, read, rating, and it was usually F, and I was like, yes, that's an F that we <laughs> want. So. Yeah, and it, there's people who are criticizing them now because they're not supporting the heartbeat. Um, petition drive, heartbeat bill, petition drive in Michigan. Um, but, you know, Michigan is a different state. We still have our ban, our abortion ban, complete ban on the books. Um, and so we're sitting pretty once Roe v. Wade's overturned. You know, all these other states, they didn't have an abortion ban. That's why they're doing these heartbeat bills. You know, that's why they're doing, you know, the outright abortion ban and because they didn't have their ban on the books. So, you know, we we have a great history in Michigan where we've been successful. Like, everything that's been done has been very successful. And we don't want to have anything that is not, like, a failure. We have, a, a, you know, 100% pro-life public policy, and we, we haven't had any kind of failures. And so, you know, it could be risky to go forward with this and then and not succeed and then it can say, oh, well, the people decided and this this wasn't successful. And plus, we don't have an attorney general right now who's going to defend it. Absolutely not. Um, and that could be really dangerous. So, um, I, you know, 
I'm really supportive of Right Place of Michigan, and, and I appreciate them so much, how they've been, like, the example for decades. For decades, they were the only affiliate of National Rights Life who refused to compromise on the rape issue. I appreciate you you um, uh, expounding on that, the whole reason why Right to Life kind of went away from the heartbeat bill, um, simply because that has come up um, in my own household as kind of a negative, but hearing you lay it out that way um, makes a lot of sense to me. So I appreciate you talking about that, how we, we have one of the strongest pro-life, record, um, pro-life laws on record, and it was never rescinded, so if we can get Roe versus Wade to fall, we'll be in good shape. And on top of it, we are the only state that has a Supreme Court ruling, a state Supreme Court ruling that specifically found that there's not a right to an abortion under the state constitution. And that was the Bricker case um, after Roe v. Wade. And it said only in light of Roe v. Wade, our current law is unenforceable. But they did not repeal the current abortion ban. And so, like I said, Michigan is really sitting pretty, whereas in Iowa, their state Supreme Court uh, found a right to an abortion in the 72-hour waiting period case, and then again um, seven months later in the heartbeat bill case. And so their whole heartbeat bill was overturned in um, in. Iowa, and now their only remedy is to do a personhood amendment or to do what Tennessee did and just have an amendment to the state constitution specifically finding that there's not a right to an abortion under the state constitution. And it stinks that there's a lot of states where they have, um, you know, they're like a red state or maybe a purple state like Michigan is, but they have very liberal Supreme Courts like North Dakota is extremely a red state, Republican state, but they have a very liberal Supreme Court. And again, it's because Right to Life of Michigan endorses at the judicial level, in in judicial races, um, beginning at the district court level all the way up to the Supreme Court, that we have had a very pro-life Supreme Court. And right now we have um, a one-vote majority. We lost a good guy last November, and so we can't afford to lose another Supreme Court justice in Michigan. Um, but they have done a great job. They really have. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say, also, there are just a couple other things that I wanted to say. It is interesting how, how pro-life we are as a state, and yet we have um, very liberal U.S. senators um, because of largely, I think, uh, the Detroit area and surrounding counties that often go liberal. So it's important for us to stay vigilant and stay involved. Um, And it's fortunate that we have a lot of um, conservative people in the House and the Senate keeping our governor in check as well. But it's... Yeah. It's because of the way people vote. People vote top of the ticket, right? And that's why we have a majority in the House and Senate and a majority at the Supreme Court level. But it's those top-of-the-ticket races that are, like, the popular races that people will vote in. And the, um, because we're a Rust Belt state, you know, we're kind of a union state. You know, we do have the UAW and others who really help to get um, Democrats elected at the top of the ticket. And that's where, where we struggle here. And that's why I say we're a purple state. Purple? 
that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I did. I also just wanted to say, in in closing of this particular talking of just the legislations, that it was interesting to see the Democratic governor of Louisiana signing their heartbeat bill and kind of encouraging because the Democrats, at least the ones running for president, seem to be trying to out um, pro-abortion each other and out uh, to be more to be more accurate and less politically correct to out uh, to prove themselves to be greater murderers than the next guy, which is kind of a sad thing to watch. Yeah, Louisiana is an interesting anomaly. I mean, they, um, yeah, they have a lot of pro-life Democrats there still. Whereas in Georgia, their pro-life Democrats switched over to Republican. Um, and, yeah, we've seen this, you know, them go from being a blue state to a red state. Uh, but in Louisiana, you still have a lot of um, pro-life Democrats, and they're very pro-life, like no exceptions. They're wonderful. Yeah, uh, that does that does make for some interesting things that are going on. Um, so, well, it's been great to talk to you, and um, I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer because we have many like-minded passions, but I want to thank you for your time and just ask if you have any final thoughts for an, our listeners about continuing to engage and be vigilant in the pro-life debate. You know, I mean, just get involved, do something, make sure you talk to your your children, your grandchildren about this issue. It's sad we have so many people who are pro-life and then their grandchildren are voting the opposite. So, you know, make sure you're, you are where they are, um, where you get a chance to communicate and see what they're posting. You know, I'm on Instagram and, and I have a Snapchat account, I'm not really active, um, but, uh, you know, this is where the youth are, and so we, we have to make sure that we're engaging um, on social media. It's sad, but that's where, you know, you have a chance to see, um, you know, what, what your kids are doing and what interests them and your grandkids. And I really encourage people to, you know, pick that up, get involved in social media, and, um, it, you know, it's a chance, an extra chance to influence um where your kids and grandkids are going every day, you know, they're there every day, and, you know, you, you might not see your grandkids every day like that, and uh, especially, you know, once they're teenagers and are in college, and this is your chance to be able to maintain a connection with them and, and be a person of influence. All right, well, thank you for that. I guess in closing, can you just give us your social media? Where do we find you? Um, Rebecca Kiesling on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, it's at Rebecca Kiesling without the G, because Twitter wouldn't allow my full name. <laughs> um, and then, of course, on Facebook, Rebecca Kiesling, Pro-Life Speaker, website's RebeccaKiesling.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, of course. And then Save the One is my organization, and I really, really prefer people just go ahead and follow that because that's really all-encompassing of all the difficult cases, so-called difficult cases. And we post a lot of good stuff there. Um, you know, I want a legacy that's going to last beyond me. And we have a network of over 800 of us conceived and raped, mothers from rape, and hundreds who were told by doctors to abort. And we post really quality stuff. And that Save the One, it's the number one, not the word one. On Twitter, it's at Save the One Child. Um, 
and uh, SaveTheOne.com. We have our blog there as well, and hope you'll share those stories, videos that we have posted. Uh, awesome. Well, we'll definitely make our listeners aware of the social media and post some links to the blog um, post that I have that I'll have for this interview and I hope that you will also share it on your social media so that more people can find out about speaking for him and the work that we are continuing to do to engage primarily Christians in um, not giving up the fight because uh, the, the other thing that bugs me is Christians that say I'll pray about it but don't take action and I, I don't see that in the Bible. Moses didn't just pray about leading the people out of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. He 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 re, he refused to do it at first, but then he finally went. And God didn't lead them out of Egypt until Moses was willing to go. So our God wants us to pray, but He also wants us to act. And I think that's an important thing to bring up. Yep. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rebecca. I really enjoyed it. All right, thanks so much. And there you have the second part of our interview with Rebecca Kiesling, pro-life advocate and attorney. I'm very excited to share these shows with you. So make sure that you, uh, again, listen to both episodes and share them with your family and friends so they can get this important message. I would love for this uh, interview to blow up and just really go viral because I think there's a lot of positive things in this, in this. And if it expands my ministry and my reach all the better, um, so that we can continue to accomplish big things here at speaking for him for the glory of God. Uh, did you have any thoughts on part two here, Dan, as we wrap up? Um, uh, hmm. you know, I should think about it more. <laughs> Well, there definitely is a lot to think about on uh, this interview and, and a lot to digest. And I hope that it's been an encouragement to all those who are listening. Um, so I will just say um, have a great weekend and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 